Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Great to be back here uh, down in Stockwell. Um, I can't remember the last time I was here. I think... Uh, our twins were born um, the last time I was here, but uh, they're here this morning. They've come with uh, me and Dee uh, and Isaac as well, so I've got the whole family with us today, so please do stick around, say hi uh, to them, uh, and just, yeah, be great to yeah to introduce you to our ever-growing family, and uh, great to see that there's an ever-growing family here in Stockwell as well, which is which is lovely. So, um, yeah, really good to be here, and uh, Mylan send their love as well. Uh, yeah, just feeling really blessed at our East. We finally finished our building. Coburn Street is finally done. The kitchen is finished. Uh, been a massive project. Um, but yeah, thank you for your prayers and your support. In fact, some of your giving goes towards us being able to be a blessing to that area in Myland as well. So we are just super grateful that uh, we get to do this together. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing in Myland without the support of uh, the wider Christchurch London. So thank you so much for, uh, for your support in all of that. And uh, as Helen said... Uh, we are uh, going through the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going through this Gospel uh, slowly and steadily throughout the course of this year, maybe even into 2024, because we want to just spend some time really ingesting, really digesting what uh, this Gospel, what the life of Jesus is all about. And we're going to intersperse it with some different series on uh, different subjects, different themes, different discipleship practices, just to kind of break it up. So don't worry if you kind of get, forget to August and you're just sick of Luke. We will uh, break it up a little bit just to keep it fresh. Uh, but um, as we have seen over the start of uh, Luke, the first couple of chapters, Luke is essentially setting up Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the one who would redeem Israel and ultimately the whole world. And throughout these first three chapters, uh, Luke is showing us that, he, that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, prophecies from the likes of Isaiah or Ezekiel, uh, but actually he's uh, redeeming the whole story of Israel. He's redeeming uh, and, and through his life he's mirroring and echoing major themes and events of the Old Testament. So as an example, when we read the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we get a, an, an echo, a memory of another couple who were uh, similarly old and childless and promised a son. It, it kind of echoes the story of Abraham and Sarah, the beginning of God's redemptive plan. And the, the point of that is to give us this inclination, oh, something is important here is happening. Something is happening in the story of the redemption of Israel. Uh, you'll hear, hear this talk a little bit later on. We're changing the chronology a little bit um, just because the preaching rotor is madness. Uh, but Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, which is the same river that the Israelites crossed to enter the promised land. And again, it's this hint that there's this kind of new promised land uh, to come, but it won't come through a, a, just through an area, but it'll actually come through a person, through Jesus. And as I say, you'll hear more about that uh, in the coming weeks. A couple of weeks, I think you're hearing that talk. Uh, but I just want to highlight one part of that story that's super important for us today and what we'll be looking at. Uh, and it comes in chapter three, and it's where Jesus is baptized. And after he's baptized, he's kind of lifted out the water, and a voice from heaven comes down and says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And this is the kind of most obvious, almost the kind of climax to this, this first movement of Luke, really emphasizing the point that Luke is trying to get across, that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't get a kind of more obvious sign than a voice coming from heaven uh, saying that uh, to you. That's pretty obvious. And then after that, that, that baptism, that encounter, you get this long genealogy that roots Jesus in the history of Israel. It goes all the way from David to Abraham. And then finally, not coincidentally, Luke says, 
the son of Adam, the son of God. Again, this emphasis on Jesus being uh, the son of God and rooted all the way back through Israel to Adam to, uh, to God himself. And then this theme of Jesus' sonship uh, is now reaching its climax in the story we're going to look at today before Jesus begins his public ministry. And it's where Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Again, just another echo of uh, the Old Testament with the 40 years the Israelites spent uh, in the wilderness before uh, crossing the Jordan and entering the Promised Land. So the first chapters, the first three chapters are are setting up Jesus as the Son of God. And now this is Jesus proving it through a confrontation in, in the wilderness with the devil. So we're going to read the passage. It's chapter 4, uh, and it's from verse 1, and the words will be on the screen. This is what it says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, for some of us, and I don't know uh, your story about in terms of faith, But we might be okay with the idea of a God. We might think that there's probably a creator of the universe. And we might think that Jesus had some kind of connection to that creator. Maybe a good teacher, a moral leader, a prophet, that kind of thing. We might be comfortable with all of that. Uh, But the devil? No, thank you. We're into the realms of Hollywood and Halloween. And for many modern, educated, secular people, that is just too much, too far. And I can understand that. I have some sympathy with that. Over the last 500 years, our whole culture has moved away from being permeated by the supernatural uh, or spiritual or transcendent, from our customs to our daily habits to our architecture to our societal structures. But now the slow secularization of society reflects what many people believe to be true, that this, this is all there is, biology and chemistry. And the philosopher Charles Taylor, he calls this the disenchantment of our culture and therefore the disenchantment of humanity. Now, there are so many implications for that move. Firstly, we humans, we are reduced to biology and chemistry. That might sound palatable, but there are some pretty existential and personal implications for a world stripped of transcendence. What do you do with human dignity or value or worth or human rights? What do you do with love if it's simply a chemical construct for survival? And another implication is that truth becomes only what is physical and provable. And therefore, everything else, morality, meaning, ethics, what's good and what's evil, all of that is up for grabs. In a disenchanted world, there is no immutable shared definition of good or understanding of good and 
evil. Instead, it's reduced to psychology or sociology or culture or even preference. Truth becomes personal and private. And this disenchantment has resulted in the devil, rather than being a very real, intelligent being whose purpose is to destroy our societies and our souls, becomes a fictional villain with red horns. But Jesus, Jesus took the devil very, very seriously. Here's how he describes uh, the devil in John 8. He says that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus believed that the devil is real, that his primary goal is death, and that his primary weapon is lies. And we can see this at work throughout scripture, most iconically and famously right at the beginning in Genesis to the fall itself. That moment is the result of a lie. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this lie, he tells, gets at the heart of two things, who God is and who we are. In order to get what he wants, the devil questions the identity of God, that instead of being a good and generous creator, he's somehow holding out on us, suspicious, afraid even. And then he tells Eve that who God has made her to be is not enough. And the ironic tragedy of Genesis 3 is that the devil tells Eve that she can be like God when she was already made in his image. And so it should be no surprise when we come to this story that we're looking at today that the, that the weapon the devil uses to tempt Jesus with is lies, but not, not just kind of outlandish, obvious lies. Instead, it's lies that kind of twist and subvert the truth, similarly to Genesis and Genesis 3. And the truth that the devil twists is what Luke has introduced as the central theme of his opening chapters, that Jesus is the Son of God the one who will save humanity from their sin and the catastrophic results of the fall. You think you're the son of God? Prove it. And so Jesus, after having the most profound and affirming words spoken over him and about his identity, about who he is, is now greeted with three temptations that is going to put all of that to the test. And we're going to go and look at each one. And I'm going to follow the order that uh, Matthew lays out. Uh, for some reason, Matthew puts the Luke's third temptation second and second third. So we're going to follow that uh, order. hope that's okay. Um, so let's look at the first temptation, the temptation of the flesh. Now, this to me at least seems like the most uh, obvious test. Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. Uh, and on the surface, it's a simple temptation. But what's interesting is, is how uh, the devil frames this question, how he, how he frames this test to try to influence Jesus. Because he doesn't go straight for the desire. He goes firstly to his identity. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, you look hungry. Turn these stones into bread. He says, if you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The devil questions Jesus's identity in order to influence his behavior and therefore his destiny and his purpose. But I think the devil actually plays his hand here. For the devil, he assumes that the authority, the power and the glory that comes with being the son of God means you get to satisfy your desire. The power or authority, the power or authority means indulging what the Bible calls the flesh. 
And there's this underlying assumption in this temptation that if Jesus really was the Son of God, he should have the, the freedom and the ability to exercise his power and satisfy his flesh, his bodily desire. Or to put it another way, because the desire is there, it should be satisfied. The devil thinks he's seen an opening to get Jesus to focus in on himself because that is what the devil would do. But here's the thing about Jesus. He never used his authority or power on himself. It was always for others. And notice right at the beginning of this passage, this is is what it says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. This wasn't the devil's plan. This was God's plan. And I think the devil assumed that he was getting Jesus at his weakest. He's tired and he's desperately hungry. But although his flesh may have been weak, he was strong. He'd spent 40 days feasting on the presence of God, not gratifying the desires of the flesh, but living out the words, man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this temptation to indulge the flesh, it doesn't just apply to food, but it applies to sex, to rage, to envy, to selfishness. And Paul describes it best in Galatians 5, where he says, and you're just, you're just, when you read this, it's almost like he has this, this temptation or this uh, story in mind when you, when, when you read this. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul is saying here and in so many of his letters uh, to the church is that if you live out this freedom to gratify the flesh, you will be mastered by it. Sin has this compound effect. Once we give into it, it continues to draw us in deeper and deeper until it has a hold on us. So where's the lie from the devil? The lie is that you are only truly free when you're free to satisfy every desire of the flesh. But the way of Jesus says that's not freedom, that's slavery. The way of Jesus says that you're only free with the help of the Spirit by resisting the power of the flesh. Here's how John Mark Comer describes this process. Jesus and the New Testament writers worked off this core recommendation. Deception is tied to temptation. Temptation to slavery to sin. And it's the truth that will set you free. So where is the application for us in this story? What can we learn? Well, I think there's a reason why Jesus fasts in this story. Fasting is, in many ways, a kind of unforgotten uh, spiritual practice in our kind of stream of the church in many ways. And, but it's the spiritual practice that physically reminds us that we cannot live on bread alone, that we aren't to be enslaved by the flesh, but rather be obedient to God. And it's this practice that integrates our heart, our mind and our body probably like no other. And it frees us, it helps us to learn how to be free from the slavery of our flesh when our natural inclination is to indulge it. 
But there's also, fasting is also a powerful tool in fighting the work of the enemy. In Mark 9, the disciples ask Jesus how to drive out an evil spirit from a boy. And he replies, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. There are some things in this world that are so evil, so entrenched, and so opposed to the kingdom of God that they cannot be entirely defeated without some kind of special power from God. And in a mysterious way that I don't fully understand, fasting unlocks that power. At least that's what we read in Scripture from Mark 9 or from this story itself. And I just want to encourage you when it comes to your own spiritual practices is to try fasting. And if you can relate or, or if you struggle with this kind of desire of the flesh, if you feel like you, you're, you're enslaved to that desire, or you want to grow and experience more of the life of God in your life, uh, I just encourage you to give it a go. And for me, this is I don't know, a few years ago now, I just really had this desire or, or I guess conviction really to, to, uh, to fast um, my prayer life was good, but I just didn't, I just hadn't gotten to the rhythm of, of fasting. And the thing that really changed the dial for me in my own life was doing it in community. Um, to be encouraged and challenged and inspired by other people to fast regularly together was just the game changer for me. Uh, and we've just seen the fruit of that in our own lives and, in, and in, yeah, in the life of that little community that we have. So I just encourage you, if that is something you would like to do, like speak to your community about it, speak to some friends, do it together, and then feast together, break fast together. It's just amazing. Uh, and we're actually approaching Lent, which is obviously built, is built off this, this story in, um, in Luke and Matthew. Uh, so this is just a good time to, to sort of put that into practice or a good place to start. So that's the first test. And now let's skip to the third and we'll come back to the second Uh, This test is the temptation of glory. So the devil leads Jesus from the desert to Jerusalem, but not just to Jerusalem, but the highest point of the most prominent and important building in Israel, the temple. And he says, throw yourself down, but if you're the son of God, the angels will catch you with the devil misusing a passage from Psalm 91. So the devil moves Jesus from this place of solitude, from a private place to a public place, And wants Jesus to jump from a building where he'll either fall to his death, which is a win for the devil, or perform this miracle that would lead him, Jesus, to revealing his identity in the most public and spectacular way possible. And in fact, we already know uh, from the second temptation, which we'll go on to in a moment, that Jesus was already in a high place. When when the devil gave him this vision of all the kingdoms of the earth that would bow down to him, he was in a high place. It says so in verse 6. So it wasn't that the kind of height that the devil was trying to move Jesus from. The difference here was Jerusalem, the environment, the temple, the eyes that would be on him to see him do this incredible thing. Rather than Jesus going through the slow work, the three years of gathering followers, sharing his life with them, teaching the most profound and influential words ever spoken, healing, restoring the broken and challenging the corrupt religious elite and ultimately going to the cross, the devil wants none of that. He wants to stop that. And I think the devil uses two of his most powerful tactics when it comes to how he tries to destroy our souls and our societies. I think he takes Jesus to Jerusalem because he thinks if I can get the environment right, I can influence Jesus and make him do something that he wouldn't do in the wilderness. And secondly, if I can get my words right, if I can twist scripture for my own purposes, maybe he'll take the bait. This is all about the influence and the power of our environment, either our physical environment or what words, information or content we consume that get us to do things that we wouldn't normally do or want to do. And for Jesus, it was the Holy of Holies. It was the temple. It was Jerusalem and it was scripture. But because our environment has stripped uh, away any sense of transcendence or at least 
Um, we can see it, obviously, but it's, it's, it's intent was to strip transcendence and God out of our kind of daily consciousness. We are shaped by that. We are so shaped by our environment. We have to be aware of how those things, how our city is shaping us, our self-worth, our purpose, our identity, our habits, our thoughts, our decisions. And there are so many ways I think we can apply this, the, just the power and the influence of our environment. But I think, I think this is acute when it comes to what we consume online. I am convinced that social media is the most powerful and formative environment we choose to place ourselves in. And if we are not careful, in that environment, we will project lies onto ourselves because we think we don't measure up. We see the illusion of other people's lives, their success, their beauty, their homes, their kids, even the devotion to Jesus. And we tell ourselves that my real life doesn't measure up. And for me, and I've kind of gone through this, like this is, this is, I'm kind of speaking from experience. The way I kind of reflect on that was that it was almost like nerve endings. Like every platform you project yourself onto gives you this, like, is this open nerve ending that can receive joy or can be open up to pain and anxiety. And I've gone through a process of just basically closing all them up, uh, ironically, Facebook included, uh, being intentional with that and being intentional with what each platform is and what I kind of allow myself to project onto that platform. Um, because for me, in that, my experience of kind of playing the social media game, was, it was just negative. The net game was negative for me. It was anxiety was the, the driving emotion I received from that environment. I needed to change that so I didn't believe the lies that I was just so easily succumbed to when I was consuming that on a regular basis. So where do we place ourselves? What environments are we in? How are they forming us into the likeness of Jesus? It could be a physical place. It could be digital. It could be the content you're consuming regularly. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. How are these forming you? Who are you becoming? And my encouragement uh, as you think about that, is to uh, do, again, do it in community. It's one thing to delete Facebook. It's quite another to leave a job or a relationship. So please seek wisdom. Do this prayerfully. Uh, maybe take an audit of the environments you find yourself regularly in and just see how are these shaping me. Who are they allowing me to become through my regular presence within that environment? And the way Jesus overcame the influence of his environment is through Scripture. Jesus knew the Word. Every temptation was countered with scripture. And when the devil in this temptation mishandles scripture, which we have to be super careful with, he counters it with scripture. And ever since, uh, ever, ever since I can remember, at least in adulthood, I have, I have battled with various forms of uh, anxiety. And it really came to a head during the pandemic, as I'm sure many of you obviously know the, the pressures we were all, all under during that time, which is really awful. And I just remember a moment being at home uh, feeling both the physical and mental battles that I was going through. And in that moment, I just believed, like, I don't know if it was just my memory or the spirit just whispered into my heart and just spoke scripture and truth over my life. The words of Jesus, the words of the gospel, the words of scripture. I'm loved, I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, I don't need to strive. And in the mom that moment, I felt like the word of God being the sword of the spirit in my life, battling the lies that I'd come to believe. And I still battle with, with, with anxiety, but I'm convinced that the environments we intentionally choose to place ourselves in, what we choose to consume, what we allow to speak over our lives, they are just so important when it comes to how we live the way of Jesus in this city that has just stripped itself of transcendence or any sense of a spiritual life. So just let's allow our hearts and our imaginations and our identity be shaped by him, his word, his truth. And let's be aware of the ways the enemy uh, we want to form us into people we don't want to become.
So the temptation of the flesh, the temptation of glory. And now the final temptation, the temptation of power. The devil really goes for broke. Worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Now the fact that the devil would think that Jesus would bow to him in order to receive the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world, I think just shows how blind the devil was to the character of God. This was Jesus, knowing the path he was about to walk down leads to the cross, presented with the easy way out, an easy way to power, a way free of suffering uh, and kind of a quick fix to uh, authority and power. But what Jesus would go on to do through his life and death is show us what true power looks like. The power is not something to be grasped for its own sake, but given up for the sake of others. Here's our Henry Nouwen reflects on this passage. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers us an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. And the devil's goal here throughout these temptations is for Jesus to turn inwards on himself, to focus on himself and give up his identity, his sonship. And that's exactly what can happen to us, that that life can be all about me, the self, my desire, my glory, and my power. But Jesus also gives us the key here to resist that temptation. Jesus answered the devil with, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The way to resist the schemes of the devil, this temptation to turn inwards on ourselves, is through worship. It's through cultivating a love for God that is so much greater than what the self or what the world can offer us. James 4, it says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Submission as resistance. Worship as resistance. Obedience as resistance. That is the way of Jesus. And throughout this battle, the devil is trying to strip Jesus of his identity and therefore his purpose. You're the son of God. Drink, eat, and be merry. You're the son of God. Take the easy route to power. You're the son of God. Show them what you can do. But how does Jesus fulfill his identity and purpose and express his power and authority as the son of God? Not my will, but yours be done. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Pick up your cross and follow me. This is the call of Jesus. And what we mustn't take from this passage is that this is primarily about how Jesus has battled the devil and seeing Jesus as our example. Now, there is so much to learn from this passage, and hopefully we've learned something today. But the key part of this story and the whole gospel of Luke is this. Jesus has already won. Yes, he's our example, but most importantly, he's our saviour. He's beaten sin and death, freedom, forgiveness. Life is available because he's already won. And it's in knowing that, knowing who he is and what he's done, that is how we redirect our hearts and minds to him. That is how we break the power of lies that the enemy so easily wants us to believe, of an enemy that is already defeated. The best way to resist the devil, his schemes, his lies, is to love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we love him, when he becomes the focus of our worship and the purpose of our lives, Christ is no longer just an example, but as Paul says to the Galatians, Christ is formed in us. 
His life becomes our life. His thoughts become our thoughts that break the power of the lies of the devil. And I, I, I feel like I see this in my lens. I feel like this has been my battle, but I think we so easily fall into this temptation of believing lies about who we are. But Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And I just want to, maybe the band could come back. I just want to just spend some time just reflecting on that, worshiping Jesus. And I think there may be people here that have believed words, maybe even lies, about who they are, their past, your present, your future, uh, about your identity, about who you are. Uh, and I feel like the Spirit wants to break the power of those lies and uh, speak truth and freedom over you um, this morning. And for you just to see yourself as God sees you, um, truly loved, a son and daughter of God. So why don't we stand and I'll just pray for us and uh, we'll worship together. Yeah, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are our saviour. Lord, I thank you that you are truth. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have already won for us and you've given us everything we need to believe who we are, who you've made us to be. Lord, and I just pray that for anyone here who feels like they have believed or lived out a lie about who they are, who believe they're not enough, or that they'll never be forgiven, or that their future is bleak. Lord, I pray now that your spirit will come and you break the power of lies in their hearts, in their minds, in their bodies. Lord, the Holy Spirit, you would just fall now as we worship you. And let that be our resistance, Lord Jesus, our love for you, our surrender to you not trying through our own willpower to believe the best, but just surrendering our hearts and, and our lives to you. Would you set us free? Would your truth set us free this morning? Come Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Let's worship.